0: From 3 Uncanny 4, this is Viral, a show about COVID-19. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. And I'm reporter
1: Emily Saul. By this point, a lot of you are probably working from home, just like us. So if you hear birds in the background, that is why. And working from home gives one a lot of time to think, imagine things, daydream, feel anxious... And one of the things that I've found myself worrying about recently is hospitals. In Italy, medical professionals are describing hospitals as battle zones. In Wuhan, they erected massive treatment facilities from the ground up in a matter of days just to deal with the insane influx of patients with COVID-19. And in New York, we're preparing for that possibility.
0: An absolutely massive ship will soon be docked in New York Harbor. It's three football fields long, white with red crosses painted on each side. It's called the USNS Comfort, and it's a floating hospital. It's got 1,000 beds and 12 operating rooms. To be clear, it's not going to be used to treat COVID-19 patients. The reason it's being pulled in is to help with all the other people in the New York metro area who might need other kinds of medical attention while hospitals here are overwhelmed with coronavirus.
1: And a massive Navy ship docking next to New York City? That's a really potent symbol of where we're at with this crisis, because it's really
0: starting to feel like we're at war with the coronavirus. And we've been hearing that shifting language for a few days now, to the world fighting a war against coronavirus. And I think it has a lot of people wondering, is there a role for the U.S. military to play in all of this? We're going to explore that today. But first, some headlines.
1: This episode was recorded on Thursday, March 19 at 1153 Eastern Time. 9,415 people in the U.S. have confirmed cases of COVID-19 across all 50 states. 150 people have died. 227,743 cases are confirmed globally. Across the world, 9,318 people are dead. China has reported its first day with no new locally transmitted infections. In the U.S., Lawmakers are drafting a $1 trillion stabilization package, and President Trump has signed a relief package promising sick leave, unemployment benefits, and free testing. Meanwhile, states across the U.S. signal they're
0: running out of ventilators. Coming up, state governors, Democratic presidential candidates, and other lawmakers are asking for help from the U.S. military. But what would that even look like? And do we really want that? That's next.
2: Welcome to True Spies.
1: Let's get one thing straight. The military is uniquely suited to handle crisis with speed and efficiency. It's kind of their job.
2: It's a different organizational culture. It's a different mindset. And it's absolutely the case that one of the great assets of a military response is that single chain of command and the commitment to operating or executing on a mission.
1: That's Tony Banbury. He was the U.N. Assistant Secretary General for field support. He also happens to be our editor's brother-in-law. Tony has worked all over the world dealing with all sorts of health crises. He ran the Ebola crisis response in 2015. He ran the global response to the tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004. And he ran the response in Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. He is, just maybe the most experienced civilian global crisis responder in the world. And, he says, he couldn't have done any of it without the military.
2: One thing the military is able to do better than anyone else is respond quickly and with big capabilities. One of the things they did in the Ebola response, the U.S. military did in Liberia was built, I think it was 17 Ebola treatment units, ETUs. These are dedicated hospitals just to deal with Ebola patients or uh, patients who are thought to have Ebola, uh, to have them go there instead of go and infect patients and doctors who aren't prepared for them at uh, rural health clinics. And the US military deployed enormous capacity very quickly throughout the countryside in Liberia and built all these Ebola treatment units. This
0: is what the military is capable of. They parachute in with their own design teams, engineers, medical personnel, supplies, generators, and they get it done.
2: One of the most important roles is going to be uh, potentially the establishment of additional Healthcare facilities to deal with large numbers of COVID 19 patients. Uh, Our hospitals are going to be over quite likely. A number of hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, and we need overflow capacity.
0: And guess what? They have hospitals in boxes. Well, sort of.
2: It's not like they're, they're going to Home Depot and buying the timber, right? They, they have the, they have these hospitals in uh, containers in warehouses, military warehouses on military bases. They, they have the supplies, the materials to build these facilities ready to go. Um, so that is an essential action for them.
0: And that's not all. The U.S. military has even more tools in their toolbox. So the uh, Defense
1: Department has what's called a chemical and biological uh, defense program. And it's when I served uh, as Assistant Secretary of Defense, I oversaw that program. And it's over a billion dollars a year of, of research and development, of uh, testing, and even
3: procurement of different uh, vaccines and, and what we call medical countermeasures.
1: That's Andrew Weber. He was the Pentagon's top biodefense official between 2011 and 2014. During that time, the Pentagon helped come up with the first viable vaccine candidates and drugs to treat Ebola. Right now, DARPA, which stands for Defense Research Arts Agency, is actually working on a shield treatment. It boosts the immune system and temporarily protects from COVID-19 in order to buy time until a broader treatment is available. So the military has a lot of experience with this stuff. That's why so many states are asking for their help.
0: More than 20 states have now activated their National Guard. Here in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has called for the Army Corps of Engineers to assist the state in building facilities and hospital beds. Washington Governor Jay Inslee says his state is working with the Department of Defense to get more beds and supplies. And look, this topic
1: has our staff divided. Some of us said, of course we should call the military in. Things are crazy if they know how to build hospitals in a matter of days, get them to build hospitals now, of course. That's a no-brainer, and it's easy to see why.
2: When it's done right, the military comes in fast with huge capability, enormous resources, gets stuff done, uh, and buys the civilians time uh, to build up their capabilities because we move at a much slower pace. We don't have those resources.
0: Sure, we probably all want military hospitals to be built, military doctors to treat us, military vaccines to prevent illness. But those things do come with soldiers, guarding units, running checkpoints. Does the military get to decide who gets care when there's not enough care to go around? For hundreds of years, some very wise people have warned us about just this kind of moment. You know... There's some big crisis, the military steps in, and they might help, but then, when do they stop? We'll explore that after the break. Have you
1: ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: The military does play a key role in our society. My dad's a veteran, so I understand the sacrifice people make for their country, their community, for all of us. But the military's core role Isn't healing people, it's killing people. Their job, their training, their very essence is to take down well armed armies. And it is hard for them to turn that off. And that has been a core worry throughout American history, throughout the world. It goes back to the Roman times and probably earlier. When you let the army inside the city gates, especially in a time of crisis, it's very hard to get them to leave and to give up their newfound power. In authoritarian nations, we've seen time and time again that the military ends up taking control and running the country. Many nations—China, Egypt, Indonesia, Turkey—have militaries that control much of day-to-day life. Those militaries can even decide to get rid of elected leaders that they don't like. I called up Stephen Vladek at the University of Texas School of Law. His teaching and research focuses on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, national security, and military justice. I asked him, what kind of precedent might we set if we see the military come to America's cities and towns?
3: I mean, I think there's no question that this already is a dangerous precedent and that, you know, things could get a lot more dangerous as time goes on. I mean, we're not used to situations where there is this much government control, whether at the local level, the state level, or the federal level, of private conduct, of what we do in our daily lives, of what businesses can and cannot do vis-a-vis their customers. So you know, I think we're already in fairly uncharted territory, and I think you know, chances are it's only going to get more intense and I think more um, controversial uh, going forward.
0: Vladek isn't worried about the military providing hospitals and vaccines. He's worried about the military expanding its role into law enforcement and population management.
3: If there's, you know, a natural disaster, if there's some kind of, you know, man-made crisis, if there's just a situation where the local civilian authorities just need extra manpower just to help provide logistics to help facilitate Travel, communications, you know, that kind of support and assistance function, I think, is relatively well-established and relatively uncontroversial. We see it after just about every significant um, natural or man-made crisis in the United States. Um, There's a long history of using the military for law enforcement in this country, but there's also a strong very, very heavy norm against it because there are concerns that the military um, is a broadsword, not a scalpel, that the military is not well designed to police its own citizens. Um, And so this is why there's a statute called the Posse Comitatus Act that dates back to 1878 that actually says um, you can't use the military for law enforcement unless Congress has especially authorized, unless there's some other statute that says, yes, in these circumstances, you can use the military. It's why we haven't used the military for any kind of domestic law enforcement since 1992. And the aftermath of the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, the longest period in American history when we haven't used the military for domestic law enforcement.
0: From your view, looking ahead, what should people, everyday citizens who are listening to this show right now, what should they be thinking about? Where should their eyes be looking?
3: I think in this context, the question is a very different one, not about what military force can accomplish but rather what the military could accomplish on the home front that civilian authorities cannot and so i think the question has to be you know what are the arguments for why civilian authorities are inadequate to the task at hand what are the arguments for why the military is better situated to serve a particular function than, say, a state National Guard or a state police force um, or federal officers in a law enforcement capacity. This is really a question about military assistance to law enforcement in circumstances in which law enforcement may, but by all appearances, has not yet um, been overwhelmed.
0: So my last question, and then I'll let you go, is a lot of people might feel that us even having this conversation is an overreaction or an alarmist um, sort of line of thinking. What would your response be? Is it, should we be paying attention to this now, or is this really an overreaction that we probably don't have to worry about? What, what's your take on that?
3: Well, first, I, don't, I, don't think, I, I think it's never a bad idea to, to carefully think through what might happen. I mean, I think you know, one of the things that has really beset the federal government's response to coronavirus is that you know, there wasn't nearly enough efforts to predict and project what might what might unfold and what authorities might be necessary. But you know, more broadly, I mean I think we ought to at least have the conversation now so that folks understand the nuances, right? So that folks understand that having the military basically helping to provide disaster assistance under a statute called the Stafford Act. Um, having the military helping to provide medical care. You know, for those um, cities and and jurisdictions whose own hospitals are overwhelmed, you know, those should not rub any of us as especially controversial. That one of the reasons why we have these kinds of military authorities is so that this huge, well-equipped, well-trained force can be a safety net um, in times of true crisis. And then there's the flip side, right, which is that not all uses of the military domestically are the same. There's a huge difference between using the military in those kinds of support functions um, and using the military directly for law enforcement. And I think it's when we cross that line um, that, you know, I think a lot of alarm bells are going to go off. There are reasons historically, especially over the last, you know, three decades, why presidents even confronted with um, massive emergencies, whether in the 9-11 attacks or Hurricane Katrina did not resort to domestic use of the military for law enforcement. And so I think the question is going to be not, you know, is the military doing anything to help respond to this crisis? The question is going to be, you know, if there comes a point where we cross that Rubicon, um, are we all going to understand why? Is there going to be a coherent and convincing case made for what the military can do in that moment that civilian authorities cannot do?
0: This debate is just getting started and we'll be paying attention. And we also want to hear from you. You can share your thoughts with our team by emailing viral at 3uncanny4.com with the number spelt out. And we don't just want comments about this topic either. What should we be covering? What questions do you have about this crisis? Again, you can email us at viral at 3uncanny4.com. We want to hear from you. Viral Coronavirus is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, TJ Raphael, with reporter Emily Saul. Our senior producer is Lana Richards. Our associate producer is Rahima Nasa. Our editor is Adam Davidson, and this episode was mixed by Tim Einickel. Special thanks this week to Dan Bobkoff, Shane McKeon, and Laura Mayer. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, Rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners like you find us.